He is so good. There is a revelation I came into that changed my life forever. I had reached a crisis point in my life and in my faith. And I wasn't going to give up on God or, or give up on believing there was a God. It wasn't a crisis point to that extent. But I knew what I had at that moment wasn't enough to get me to where God would have me to go. You ever been there? And so I was at a crisis point in my life. I'd find myself growing bitter, getting angry. I couldn't celebrate the victories of others. I was finding myself drawing more and more inward and less and less outward. And I knew something was missing in my relationship with God. And I finally got to the place, as any crisis point will take you, when you say, this ain't working anymore, God. I've got, I'm willing to drop everything I've learned to this point, if it's wrong, to find you in a new and more powerful way that would help guide me into the next season of my life. So I hit that point. And I prayed that prayer and I wondered, I didn't know how it was going to come about. And I was just believing that something, there was something I was missing. There was an element to my relationship with God that needed to be mended. And through a roundabout way, I found out through a, a man who was teaching on the Trinity, the thing that was missing. I'll say, wow, the Trinity, that's odd doesn't seem like that would be very life-changing. I was always told to stay away from the Trinity because it's so mysterious you couldn't understand it anyway and you'd fall into error if you ever looked at it too close. So it's kind of like Oz, right? The guy behind the, the curtain. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain, right? It's like, don't look at the Trinity. You'll fall into some kind of error. So I begin to look at the Trinity and a man was teaching wasn't even teaching on what spoke to my heart but it got my wheels to turning you ever had heard a sermon it was just one sentence and the sermon changed your entire life and it wasn't even what the guy was preaching right it was one of those moments and he was talking about this man by the name of Athanasius who was a church father and at this point in the fourth century uh, they were having uh, there was people rising up saying that Jesus was created that he was God's greatest creation but he wasn't co-equal with God. Athanasius stood up against that movement and said, no, God, Jesus Christ has always existed and he's co-equal with God and there never was a moment that Jesus didn't exist. John tells us, in the beginning was the... and the Word was... and the Word was God. So Jesus had never been created... He always existed. Okay. So that means there never was a moment in which Jesus was not a son. Now here's what changed my life. The logical conclusion then is that there's never been a moment where God the Father was not a father. See, we start at creation, don't we? In the beginning, God. But before God spoke anything into creation, He was already the father of a son named Jesus. 
that everything about God starts relationally as a father. So Jesus' mission and ministry then at this point is to, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've heard me, you've heard the Father. Jesus said, I do nothing on my own, but the only thing I do is what the Father has revealed for me to do. So Jesus' whole ministry is to rightly affirm everything that's true about God, and that is that God is a Father. So Jesus' ministry as a son and being the first fruits of those who would raise from the dead is to get others that would put their faith in him and he would pull them into sonship, them into daughtership so that we could all know what it is to know God and to know God is to know that he is a father. So Jesus' death on the cross is to show us What is in God the Father's heart for you? That there's no place the Father's not willing to go to rescue you. It's like Jesus is trying to draw us into the reality that God is a father, that God doesn't want to be known as anything else as much as he wants to be known as your dad. I guess I walked into First Presbyterian this morning. But <laughs> Lord help me. <laughs> that God wants to be revealed first and foremost as the Father. So it's like God is saying, I want my people to come home. (laughs) I want them to come home in such a way that they never have to leave. Matter of fact, I will make my home in them and they will make their home in me. Now that's the gospel. Now that's the gospel. Think about the biblical story. The biblical story is all about God creating a home, people messing it up and leaving. And then God reaching them there and saying, come back home. Adam and Eve in the garden, right? Got everything that that you would think that they would need. They're in paradise. And the first thing that God said, something's wrong here, what is it? It's not good that man's alone. That's what sin is as its essence. It's the flesh that is alone. It's the flesh without God. So he gives him Eve. Surely that's the answer to his problems. Keep silent here, guys. Keep silent. But they're in paradise. And what is God trying to display here? God's trying to, that's a rhetorical, you don't have to answer, but appreciate it. So what is God trying to display here? That even though Adam's in paradise, and it's pretty nice, 
even though he's got a fine-looking woman at his side, even though he's got abs, and he's a good-looking man himself, something's still missing, even when there's no thorns, thistles, or briars. What is missing? God. God is creating a scene to say, even when it's perfect, you'll be tempted to walk astray. Because what you are missing, Adam, you're incomplete, And the only thing that's going to complete you is me. God does this again in Revelation 20. I think it's Revelation 20. Where Christ is ruling in perfect righteousness. The devil's released out of the bottomless pit. And he still deceives nations to follow him and create a rebellion against God in a perfect society. What is God trying to show us? That your situation is not your problem. The problem is you don't have enough God. And Jesus has come in to deal with that problem first and foremost. And by his death on the cross, pay for your sins so that he could pull you into relationship with the Father where you might be completed. That's what Jesus said on the cross. It is finished. When God created man on the sixth day, Adam wasn't complete. If Adam was complete, he wouldn't have sinned. He would have been perfected, but he wasn't complete. That the end of the sixth day would probably be Jesus' death on the cross where he didn't he could take the old Adam, undo him, put us in the new Adam, which is Jesus Christ, and complete us in his death, burial, and resurrection as we serve and love Jesus Christ with all our heart and all our soul, all our mind and all our strength. That when Jesus said it's finished, I think that's the end of the sixth day. And I think that's when we enter into rest, when we find our Sabbath rest, which is Jesus. Is that all right? I think so. That God is here to break the cycle. Adam and Eve sins, you got to go out of the garden. Abraham comes up, then here comes 400 years later. We're going to a pagan nation because there's a famine. We're in Egypt. God raises up Joseph. Then comes a Pharaoh that doesn't know Joseph. Now, here comes Moses. And so it's this story of going home and going back and going home. And, and then they, the children of Israel begin to get into idolatry. And so the Babylonian captivity. And it's just back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. So God is trying to reveal himself as the father who always leaves the lights on. Do <laughs> you remember that? You knew you was in trouble when you broke curfew in my day when the light was off. Because mama got tired of waiting. And there was going to be a squeaky board. I th about had them all figured out. But there's that one, a new squeak. Yeek! <laughs> Sometimes it's scary to come back home. But it's not scary because your parents didn't love you. It's scary because it's scared to get caught. 
It doesn't have to do with the love in the Father's heart. It's just hard to come back because you feel like you got caught. You're embarrassed. This was Adam's deal in the garden. That's why he grabs leaves. Where are you, Adam? Uh, Hiding out. I've got caught. But it wasn't that God didn't have love in his heart. So the enemy wants to keep us to buy this lie that we must stay separated from God and that we can never go back home. That's what the enemy wants us to believe, that we can never go back home. That the shame and the guilt is too great. That, that the problem is too great. That everything is just, this is impossible. You can't go back home. They're going to find out who you are. They're going to find out what you did. You can't go back home. And as Satan is telling us these lies, the father's thinking different thoughts back home. So Jesus teaches us in this parable in Luke chapter 15 so that we can know what's the Father's thoughts towards those who have went wayward and gone away. Luke chapter 15 verse 11. And he said there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And what an odd thing for the father to do to grant the request of a wayward son. A son that is saying, give me that inheritance. And, and in our day, that's a pretty bad thing to say before someone dies. You never get your inheritance before someone dies unless they just want to give it to you. So basically what he's saying is, dad, I wish you were dead. I wish you could speed up this process where you would get out of my life so that I could get what I was going to get from you and do what's really in my heart to do. But the Father, in His great grace, gives Him His request. Does it make sense? Saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Now, as Jesus is telling this story to the original hearers there in first century, they would have understood what it was to honor the Father. They would have understood in such a way. Matter of fact, in Exodus it says disobedient children could be beaten or stoned. So the first century hearers are hearing this and saying, what's wrong with this guy? Go out and beat him. But instead, the Father gives the inheritance. The usual response would be for the father to disinherit the son. It would say, you know what? You don't get any inheritance. You're not even my son anymore. But the father never enters that dialogue. He gives the son what he thinks is going to complete his life. And how many of you has God given things that you thought was going to be good and it almost killed you? Because you wouldn't submit and stay in the Father. The Father grants the request. And, and so as these people are hearing this, they're starting off with, well, the Father's messed up. The Son's messed up and I'm mad. How could the Son do this? 
But doesn't Jesus always draw us into these parables where we get high and mighty, then we figure out, he's talking about me. Jesus is the master of that. Playing on our emotions where we're so righteous and I can't believe this. And then we're like, oh, yeah, I did that before. Verse 13, and not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into the far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. In this day, this, this was one of the most terrible crimes to take what the father or the family had set up for you and to burn it on things that were immoral. This would have been terrible. So the crowd is getting more and more heated. Where is this story going? Verse 14, And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out one of the citizen, to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. Now here is where those here in the story would have felt like there should be a period and the story end. Here's the son that messes up and here's what happens when you mess up and leave the father. You end up selling yourself into slavery, being a slave of sin, and you end up feeding pigs which would have made him unclean so that he could never go back to a Jewish community from then on. So now the job he's got has got him so dirty he can't even go back home if he wanted to. And he's jealous of the pig's food. Verse 16, And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So here he is, jealous of pig food. Man, I wish I had that. So what does this say? That the pigs were considered more valuable than him because the Bible says no one gave him anything. So the hearers of this story are keep hearing and there's anger and it keeps getting worse and now he's feeding pigs and jealous of what the pigs eat. So now this, this ingrained Jewish knowledge that the pig is this unclean animal, they're now about ready to throw up. He wants what pig's food? I'd rather starve. Oh, this is sickening, Jesus. What does this mean? Here he is given to these pigs. He's, he's proverbially unclean and he's into unclean eating habits and he's lost everything and he's destroyed his relationship with the Father. Verse 17, but get this. But when he came to himself, wow, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I will perish here with hunger. I will arise, go to my father, and I will say to him, notice he's rehearsing the speech here, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. 
So now he's making his way back home, but his expectations are that his best opportunity here, he's just going to be a worker on the farm. But see, that's what the pig pen tells us. See, when we stay in the pig pen and we stay in sin, the lies of Satan begin to belittle our value. We begin to lose our self-esteem. We begin to lose our self-worth. We forget about what the Father's thoughts are towards us. And we think, maybe I can just eat my way in. Maybe I can just limp my way in. And, and maybe I can just be a servant somewhere. And, and maybe the Father will somehow stomach me because of my past sins. See, some of us are in the position that our mother and father never got out of the pig pen. So we were born in the pig pen. And then we didn't get out of the pig pen. So our kids got born in the pig pen. Can I get real with you? And if we don't get out of the pig pen, their kids will be born in the pig pen. They'll be born in the pig pen and another generation will be lost. They could have went home. Could have went home. I'm tired of generations being born in the pig pen. Don't have to live there. Don't have to live in the pig pen. Now watch this. This is where the takes a turn and this is just beautiful. And he arose and he came to his father. Whew. Praise God. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. The only way you're going to be looking a long ways off is if you were already looking to begin with. So every day the father come out and stayed and fixed his eyes on that far off hill hoping that he would see the silhouette of his son top the crown of that hill where he could run to his son and embrace him. In Jesus' day, when a son left like that, the only people that could greet him, supposed to, when he came back into town, were the women. The males were not supposed to go greet them. That would have been shameful. This was a culture of honor. It's a guilt culture. So the man didn't do things that were would dishonor him. So the women could have been the one, only ones to show love. So why did the father run? In this culture, if a, the man, one of the men of the community, come here, Cole, I'm going to use you here. If one of the men of the community would have saw him coming home, knowing his reputation and what he did, This was called Kezal, uh, Kezaza. 
It's the Hebrew word. And if any men saw him trying to come home, they would take a large pot and they would break it at his feet and say, you are cut off from this community. And he couldn't go past that pot. He would have to go home. <laughs> so the father's looking every day because he's got to look because if somebody gets to him first, he can't ever come back home. So the father's looking afar off because he understands. If I don't get there, somebody might break a pot and not just my son doesn't get to come home, but his destiny will be cut off to the pig pen for the rest of his life. So the reason God sees him afar off is because he's looking every day because he's wondering, is this the day that my son is finally going to come home? And some of you have sons and daughters that are gone and you need to in prayer be looking out ahead and say, nobody's going to speak bad destiny over my children. Nobody's going to speak anything over them except for me. And I will speak the promises of God and the blessings of God so that they know that they can come back home. This is what the enemy does. The enemy gets people and he wants them to think they can't come back home. He wants them to think there's no way. You messed up too much. Separated. Dustin, the enemy tell you don't you dare make a move towards God can't come home and you know sometimes the church are the worst people to break pots Sometimes our community's the worst at breaking pots at people's feet and saying, you can't come back. But the father saw from a long ways off. And there's something else shameful. Men in this period did not run because they wore skirts. <laughs> And if any of your leg was showing, it was a shame. The fathers didn't run. That's why when the altar was built, Moses said, do not build steps, but build a ramp. Because the priest might pick his leg up and show some of his flesh and be unclean for the offering. But here, Jesus is turning this whole thing on its head. And the father to run becomes shameful and bears the son's shame so he won't have to bear his own shame. And he girds up himself. I can't do it in these tight old pants here, but I wish I could. He girds himself up and he shows them, oh, probably all the hairs done fell off his legs by that time. And he's got them old bald legs. 
And here he comes and he sees the silhouette of his son. And so before anybody gets out there with a pot, the father's running to the son and he embraces him and he kisses him. Because nobody, nobody's going to speak that my son is cut off from my community and my family. That nobody, stay up there, Cole. If there's a mic, just grab it. Start preaching or something. <laughs> that when the father sees, there's a guy with a pot. No, come back here. You're not going to speak this over my life. You're not going to, come on, Dustin, give me, get them legs going. You're not going to speak this over my life. That's my son you're talking about. And he's with me and he's in my family and nobody can have him. Not only does he beat the pot breakers, but when he comes to them, the father gets the best robe. And the best robe in the house was daddy's robe in this time. So not only does the son come back thinking he's going to be a servant, but now he's the best dressed. Well, you do look good in that green. <laughs> Dustin, don't regret coming today, okay? <laughs> now the guy coming in who had been feeding pigs and jealous of what the pigs were eating now could make the cover of GQ. Not only does he give them a robe, the Bible says that he gives them a ring. Don't read my notes, you're going to know where I'm at. The ring was a signet ring, which meant they were reinstated as sons, and they never lost a beat from the day they left to the day they came home. Then the Bible says that shoes were brought out. If you didn't have shoes, that was a sign of slavery. Y'all can't have my shoes, sorry. <laughs> and he put shoes on their feet. So they wouldn't be known as slaves. They would be the best dressed. And their ring would show that they were back as sons. See, the father beat the pot breakers. The father beat the pot breakers and gave them identity there so that when they came in, there would be no question about who they are. So now, instead of the son who should have been coming in with his tail between his legs, the father was the one that looked shameful because he doesn't have the best robe, he doesn't have his shoes, and he doesn't have his signet ring. So the father bore all the shame so the son didn't have to. <sighs> oh, but there's more. <laughs> there's more. I think there's more. Yes, there's more. Verse 21, And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against you 
or against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But look, the father doesn't even engage him in that conversation. Verse 22, but the father said to his servants, doesn't even look at the son. Father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let's celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came he drew near to the house and he heard music and dancing and he called to one of the servants and asked what these things meant and he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. I'm sorry, but the only way you're going to fatten up a calf is if you know somebody's coming home to throw a party. So not only was he looking over the hill every day, feed that calf a little more. I don't see him yet, but he's coming home. Hey, keep feeding that calf back there because this whole community is going to party. And I've got to beat sister so-and-so who might break that pot on that young man back there because he don't look just right. And, and, and so I'm looking here, but you guys get the calf good and fat because we're going to party because there's going to come a day where he's going to come over that hill and he's going to come home and he's going to give his life to the kingdom of God and we're going to be able to celebrate in the Father's house. Thank you, Lord. And we just pray, God, I thank you, Lord. Thank you for my friends here, God. I thank you, Lord, for loving us. God, as the Father would look shameful so the Son could not be shamed, God, you look shameful on the cross. When in Christ was the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. The display of the Father's heart of Christ on the cross. Thank you, Lord. So God, let us not buy the lie of the shame that we can't give our life to Christ. That we can't come back home. But God, we can come back home. We can come home. We can come home. With every head bowed and every eye closed.